He made a good confession. I'm talking here about the prodigal son. The boy made a good confession. A very good confession. Now I know he had never entered a reconciliation room like the ones we have here at St. Pius X, nor did he use the traditional opening statement, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned, nor did he receive a formal penance from a validly ordained priest or say an act of contrition. But he made a good confession nonetheless because all the elements that the Church says are necessary for a good, valid confession were present in his story, either explicitly or implicitly. Let me begin by asking you the question, what four elements are necessary for a good confession? Do you know? In other words, what four things are required for a person to be absolved of his sins in the Sacrament of Reconciliation? Every Catholic should know these for lots of reasons, not the least of which is his eternal salvation might hang in the balance. Think about it. If a person has committed a mortal sin and needs God's forgiveness, he's not going to know if he actually received that forgiveness unless he knows what God requires of him and what God requires of the priest. If he's ignorant of those things, then all he can do is hope. Hope that he's been forgiven. Well, if you paid attention back when you were in Catholic school or in catechism class, you know the answer. The four elements that make up a good confession are contrition, confession, absolution, and satisfaction. Contrition, confession, and satisfaction are acts of the penitent, the person going to confession. Absolution, of course, is the action of the priest. Applying this now to the story of the prodigal son. First of all, let me say that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this boy was in the state of mortal sin. Spiritually speaking, he was in heap big trouble. Now, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters say, there is no such thing as mortal sin. All sin is equal. All sin is equally offensive to God. Mortal sin is not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. St. John, in chapter 5 of his first letter, speaks of it as deadly sin, or the sin unto death, which he explicitly distinguishes from lesser sins, what we would call theologically venial sins. And mortal sin is present by implication in this story of the prodigal son, because what does the father say to the older son at the very end? after this boy gets all upset that his dad has thrown this big party for his wayward brother. The father says, and here I quote, we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. Now at that point, the older brother could have said, now, 
Wait a minute, dear old dad. Younger brother, baby brother, bad boy baby brother isn't dead. He's very much alive and having a big party now with all of his friends, which is precisely why I'm so upset. But the older brother understood. His father was speaking in spiritual terms, not in physical terms. And from that perspective, the younger son had been dead. He had cut himself off totally from his father and from his family through his materialism and sexual promiscuity and probably a lot of other things. He was in mortal sin. But he was reconciled. And how did it happen? Well, first of all, there was contrition, sorrow. This younger son experienced true sorrow for his sins. But it's very clear, my brothers and sisters, from the details of the story, this boy's contrition was not what we would call perfect. It was what we would call imperfect. There's a difference. Perfect contrition is being sorry for your sins because you love God deeply, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you are deeply grieved that you have hurt this God whom you love so much. That's perfect contrition. Imperfect contrition is being sorry because you're afraid of going to hell. You're afraid of being punished for what you've done. Now obviously it's much better to have perfect contrition. But here's the really good news. The really good news is you only need to have imperfect contrition to receive God's forgiveness in the sacrament of reconciliation. Notice why the prodigal son finally made the decision to go back to his dad. It was not primarily because of love. He didn't say to himself, Oh my gosh, I realize now how much I love my father. I am so sorry that I heard him so... No! First and foremost, he went back to his dad because he was afraid. He was afraid he was going to die. And he was probably right. If he had kept hanging around with Porky Pig and friends, he most likely would have died. So he woke up. He got very practical. He said to himself, you know, I had it pretty good back home. I didn't appreciate it way back when. But I had things pretty good back there. Even my father's servants ate better than this. They didn't have to eat pig slop. Maybe if I go back, my dad will take me in and just make me one of his servants. Hey, it's worth a shot. At least I'll get a roof over my head and three square meals a day. Imperfect contrition. But it was enough. Which brings us to confession, the second step in the reconciliation process. When the prodigal son finally met his dad face to face, the first thing he did was to confess his guilt. He did it clearly. He did it honestly. To his great credit, he didn't try to minimize what he had done. He didn't make lame excuses for his behavior. Oh, Dad, I was just having a bad day, you know. I was so young back then. 
No, he called his sin, sin. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. One of the things I can relate to in this part of the story, maybe you can too, is what I would call the rehearsal. He rehearses his confession before he actually makes it. I don't know about you, but I've done that. In fact, I've done that a lot of times. The father, of course, forgives immediately. This is the beautiful part of the story. And he welcomes his son back into the family. And in the process, notice something. He doesn't throw the boy's sin back in his face. That's very significant. He reads his son's heart. He hears the words of sorrow and repentance. And that's enough. End of story. Which is precisely the way it is with us after we go to confession. God forgives, yes. But God also forgets. Which means that the sin he's forgiven never comes between us and him again. Now, he knows we did it. He doesn't forget in that sense. God knows everything. He's God. But he treats us as if we had never done it. Thank God. The absolution in the sacrament of reconciliation comes when the priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That, by the way, was not a real absolution. That was a simulation. <laughs> so it didn't count. Sorry. The absolution in this story is not as explicit, but I would say it's there. It's implicit. It's implicit in the Father's words and actions. It's implicit in his joy. It's implicit in his embrace. It's implicit in his kiss, as well as in the gift of a new set of clothes. That's an important detail of the story, because notice, they are the clothes of a son. And not any old son, a royal son, a kingly son. They're not the clothes of a servant. He takes him back as a son, not a servant. That's how God takes us back in confession, as a son, as a daughter. Which brings us finally to satisfaction, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the old Rolling Stones song. I dated myself there, didn't I? If we are truly sorry, really genuinely sorry for our sins, we will do our best to make amends for them, to make satisfaction for them. In other words, we will do our best to undo whatever negative consequences our sins have caused in the lives of other people. Not surprisingly, this is the purpose of the penance the priest gives us in a confession. Now we can do this, we can make satisfaction for our sins through our words, through our actions, and even through our prayers. That's why sometimes the priest will give you prayers to say during a confession. Now if you've ever been to me for the sacrament, you know that when I give a person a penance of prayers, I will almost always tell that person to pray those prayers specifically for one or more of the people they've hurt by their sins. You told me you hurt your wife. Pray a decade of the rosary for her and her well-being. You told me you hurt your brother or sister. Pray that decade for them, whatever. See, praying for those we sin against is one way of undoing at least some of the consequences 
our negative actions have had on them and on their lives. Now, this idea of satisfaction like absolution is not explicit in the story of the prodigal son, but I think it can be reasonably presumed. If this boy was truly sorry for how he had hurt his dad, then you can be certain that after he went back home, he did his best to be the best son he could be from that moment onward. And you can also be sure that he tried to reach out to his brother, to his older brother, and smooth things over with him, because that relationship was also in need of some big-time repair. That's clear from the end of the story. If the prodigal son was not willing to do those things, my brothers and sisters, I would question whether he was really sorry for his sins in the first place. I would question, in other words, his contrition. Personally, I think he was so grateful to his dad and so thankful to be home and away from the pigs that he happily spent the rest of his life making amends for the things he had done in his past. So there you have it. The story of the prodigal son's good confession. It's my prayer this morning that this story will provide some added incentive for us to make good confessions in the future, especially those of us who have been away from the sacrament for a long time. And I'm almost sure there are people in this church right now who fit into that category. Because the real reason that Jesus Christ told this parable in the first place was to move us to repentance. Sincere, genuine, heartfelt repentance. Because he loves to forgive us. That's why he came to this earth. That's why he died on that cross.